Trinity Baptist Church. Please listen to our Savior's story from 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8a. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Aaron. This morning, we are wrapping up this True Love series that we've been, uh, you know, doing for the last nine weeks. And I don't know about you, but it has been challenging for me because even though the concepts are pretty straightforward, they are hard for me to live out all the time. And so, um, actually, they're hard for me to live out much of the time. So it's been pretty challenging. We're going to tie a big bow on it this morning, but before we do that, I'd like for you to stand up, and I'd like for you to greet each other. I know we did that earlier, but there were fewer then than there are now. Here's what I'd like for you to do. I'd like for you to find somebody close to you that you don't know, tell them your name, tell them how long you've been at Trinity, whether it's your first time or hundredth time. And then I want, you to, I want you to tell them what your favorite affordable restaurant is, all right? This is not the place that you went for your anniversary that you had to take out a second mortgage to pay for. This is the place that when you're talking with friends and you're saying, hey, let's go get something to eat, where should we go? Oh, I know. Let's go to this place because it's really good and really reasonable. You know that place? All right, and you'll probably want to take some notes. Go, oh, I got to go there, okay? So, hi, I'm Keith. I've been here for 23 years, and my favorite place is blah. So, ready, go. (laughs) When I was growing up, going out to eat at a restaurant was, was a real treat. We didn't do it very often, and that's probably true for most people of my generation. We ate at home almost all the time. And which was fine with me because my mom was a great cook, and, and so we, we just ate at home. My mom only had one rule at the table, and that was that you need to eat a little of everything. Anybody else have that rule growing up? You got to eat a little of everything, which was no problem for me because I had an, an adventurous palate, and I was a growing boy, and so volume was more my concern than taste. So I, I didn't really have a problem with eat everything. My, my sister, my little sister Debbie, she did. She was a lot more picky than I was. And so uh, frequently there would be these standoffs at the table when my mom would cook okra or asparagus or liver and onions. Um, she would say, eat a little of everything. And Debbie would say, I'm not eating that. <laughs> Yes, you're going to eat. No, I'm not eating that. And so we would go back and forth like this. And me, I'm just saying more for me. That's fine. There was one day a week when I knew there would not be uh, culinary wars. 
And that was on Sunday, because on Sunday afternoons after church, we would always go to Furs Cafeteria. And cafeterias were glorious because there was no rule where you had to eat a little of everything because there literally was everything. And you couldn't possibly do it. So you would stand, you know, you'd get in, in the line with your tray and you would look down the, the row and just see this veritable cornucopia of culinary treats, you know. And you just, oh, and you could walk down the row and you could say... Um, Yes to the fried fish, no to the fried tomatoes. Um, yes, I believe I will have some roast beef, but roasted vegetables, no thank you. Um, pecan pie, yes please. No, no, no to the asparagus. You know, you just, you got to choose. It was a beautiful thing. Now, the reason I bring that up is, wouldn't it be nice if love were like that? If you could just, with the people in your life, choose what you wanted and deselect what you don't like. You know, as, as a parent, that would be awesome with your kids because you could say, okay, I choose the cute smiles and the good grades, but I don't choose the, you know, teenage identity crisis and college tuition. As, as a kid, it would be great if you could say, okay, with my parents, you know, yes to the, I'd like a huge helping of allowance, please. But I'm going to say no to the rules and the curfew. And as spouses, you know, I, I'm all about good health and, and, you know, good moods. But the in-laws and the laundry and the quirks, yeah, not so much. Wouldn't it be great if love was like that? Wouldn't it be just a whole lot easier and and painless and peaceful? But you know what? It wouldn't be love then. Because love is willing to accept all things. Not surprisingly, that's where Paul wraps up this, this description of love in 1 Corinthians 13. As we've been unpacking this for the last couple of months, three months almost, we, we've looked at the fact that you know, love is patient, and we talked about what that was like, and, and love is kind, and we talked about that, and, and that it doesn't envy, and, it, and on and on and on. Paul comes to this place where he wraps it up and he says, Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Paul is is looking for a ribbon to tie a, a big bow on what is one of the sweetest paragraphs in all of Scripture. And I can just imagine him putting his pen down and, and, and pausing and thinking, and he's kind of going through his checklist, and he says, you know, um, okay, we've, we've looked at patience and kindness and envy and, and arrogance. We've mentioned rudeness and selfishness and anger and forgiveness and evil and truth. Have I covered all things 
That's it. All things. So he writes on his parchment, and I love how the New King James translates this. He says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. A lot of the time, Paul, and if you read through his epistles, he's not a great wordsmith at times. Sometimes you're trying to figure out exactly what he's saying. But here with this sentence, he nails it. And listen to the rhythm as this um, sounds in the original Greek language. Pantastege, panta pistue, panta elpige, panta upomine. Four times he uses the word panta. We have derivations of the word panta in English. Uh, Pantheism is the belief that God is in what? All things. A panacea is the belief that this is a cure for what? All things. A, A panoply is an array of all things. A pantry is where hopefully you can store all things. Panta means all things. And God's view of love is like my mom's view of food. When we love someone, we take the entire package. No picking and choosing. No cafeteria line where you take huge helpings of what you want and pass on what you don't. You see, love is a package deal. But how can we love people who are difficult to love? Paul had that problem. In fact, that was one of the reasons why he wrote this epistle to the Corinthians. The church that he had planted in southern Greece was, quite frankly, going a little wacko. And so, what I want us to do this morning as we wrap up this series is I want to I walk through this whole letter of 1 Corinthians. So, we'll be here till Tuesday. But um, we're going to walk through this whole letter to see what it was that brought Paul to this place of writing chapter 13. So if you've got your Bibles or your devices, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And after, after nine verses of introduction... Paul jumps into the first issue that, that he has with the Corinthian church or, or that the Corinthian church is wrestling with. In verse 10 of chapter 1, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. The Corinthians are struggling with this issue of unity. 
And the, the word that's translated here, quarrels, can also be used to describe battles in war. They are at war with each other. And what's, what's the issue? They couldn't agree on a leader. Look at verse 12. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas. And another says, I follow Christ. See what's going on? The, the members of this church each had their favorite leader. Some would say, well, you know, I really like Paul. Paul founded this church, and, and I'm going to follow Paul. And then somebody else would say, yeah, but I, I'm going to follow Apollos because he's a really a great preacher, and he's, he's a dynamic speaker, and I'm going with him. And somebody else would say, well, I'm going to follow Peter because he was one of the original disciples. And then still another group of people would say, well, you can have all those guys. I'm going to follow Jesus. So there's this conflict going, and you have this one congregation that's been separated into four groups, the, the Paulites, the Apollosites, the Peterites, and the Jesusites. And they're in conflict with each other. And so Paul spends four chapters trying to deal with this issue. You see, with regard to unity, they were out of step. You read on and you get to chapter 5 and you find that with regard to morality, the church was out of control. Chapter 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among the pagans. A man has his father's wife. In other words, he's sleeping with his stepmom. Verse 2, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Paul wonders what's worse. The, the man's action or the church's apathy. The fact that... that Paul doesn't mention incest here, points to the fact that, that this guy is sleeping with his stepmom, which even in Corinth, which was a, a fairly debased culture, even in Corinth, this was taboo. Because Roman law said that it, it prohibited a son from marrying his father's wife, even if the father had died. But right here in the middle of the church, you have this inter-family affair taking place, and no one is saying anything about it. When it came to morals, this church was out of control. And the reason it was out of control was likely due to the fact that they had shallow theology. Because when it came to biblical knowledge, th this church was way out of line. Turn over a page to chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now about food, sacrifice to idols. Paul is responding to a, a letter, a question that, that the Corinthians had asked him in a letter about this controversy. And here's the controversy. In, in pagan and Jewish worship, um, sacrificing animals was part of the deal. Okay? 
but only part of the animal was was burned up in the sacrifice. They would take the other portion of meat and they would divide it among the priests and the public. And so um, what's going on here is they're, they're wrestling with what do you do with meat that is sacrificed to these idols in pagan worship that's being sold in the marketplace? Well, apparently, there were two camps in Corinth, the pro-meats and the anti-meats. The pro-meats said, eat away. Go for it. And Paul says, um, in verses and following, he says, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there are many gods and many, uh, I'm sorry, we know that there is, an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. See what Paul's doing? He's saying, he's giving them a little theology 101. He's, he's trying to train them. So the pro-meats saw no problem with eating meat offered to an idol because what's an idol anyway? It's nothing. But the anti-meats had a conscience issue with it. Paul puts it in words. He says, but not everyone knows this in verse 7. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. You see, some of the members of of the church felt that eating idol offered meat endorsed idol worship. The anti-meats had a hard time with this, but the the pro-meats were not being patient with them because they were saying, oh, let's do this. They felt free in Christ. They felt a liberty in Christ to do it. And they were basically in in conflict with the anti-meats who wouldn't do it. So here's what Paul says in verse 8. He says, But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. You see, his, he had no trouble with the belief of the pro-meters, um, but he had a lot of trouble with their arrogance. And that's why he began this whole section in verse 2 by saying, or in verse 1, he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And then in verse 2, he says, you think you know something, but you don't really know what you're talking about. You see, they had the right information. They just were using their freedom in such a way that it was hurting other people. And Paul says that's not right. So let's tally up what's going on in Corinth. Um, Regarding unity, they were out of step. Regarding morality, they were out of control with 
with regard to theology, they were out of line. But as any good infomercial would say, but wait, there's more. Um, In the area of worship, this church was way out of order. Just as their, their freedom had gotten them in trouble with their morals and the meat, it was causing problems in the assembly. Turn over to chapter 11. Apparently, veils were a problem. I don't see anyone here with a veil on this morning. Um, In Corinth, veils were an issue. In this culture, veils were an issue. And some of the women were coming to church without a veil on. And, And not wearing a veil in public in Corinth was regarded as... um, um, well, immoral and indiscreet. And so, some, but some women were, because of their freedom in Christ, were saying, you know what, I, I'm okay with going uncovered and, and I'm just going to, you know, face the world. Others in the church were saying, not so fast. That's not a good thing. And Paul was among them. In fact, he goes so far as to say in verse 5 that the unveiled woman might as well shave her head. I mean, if you're going to draw attention to yourself, why not just go way out? Shave your head. If you keep going in chapter 11, you, you see the issue of the Lord's Supper comes up. And in Corinth, the, the meal was more than what we have. We have, you know, crackers and juice to celebrate communion but in corn, it was a much bigger deal. It was the Lord's Supper was about food and fellowship and worship. And some people were coming for the food, but they were disregarding the fellowship and the worship. And they were coming early and they were eating a lot and they were leaving an empty table for everybody else. And Paul says, that's not right. You see, the, the women were missing the point with the veil. The others were missing the point with communion. And all of them were missing the point with regard to the gifts of the Spirit, which Paul writes about in chapter 12. Because some people were, were celebrating their gifts and saying, my gift is, is most important. And, and they were really demonstrative with it. And others were, saying, were um, feeling like their gifts were insignificant. And they were being shy with them. And Paul says, none of that's right. Because the, we all need each other. And then he goes on to talk about the fact that in, in what happens in chapter 14, with, with regard to the misuse of these gifts, the, there was pandemonium in the worship services. If you ever think that Trinity is a dysfunctional church, read 1 Corinthians. Relatively speaking, I think we're doing pretty good. They are territorially selfish. They are morally shameless, theologically reckless, and corporately thoughtless. So how do you deal with a congregation like that? 
You can correct them, which Paul does. You can instruct them, which Paul does. You can reason with them, which Paul does. But at some point in time, you have to stop talking to the head and start talking to the heart. And that's what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 13. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And parents get this. You, you've had to deal with what Paul's dealing with, with your kids. If you're a parent, you've, you've heard that blood-curdling scream come from your daughter's bedroom. And you run down the hall and you say, what's, what's wrong? And, and you see your eight-year-old son yelling at your six-year-old daughter and, and you stop him and, what's wrong? And your daughter says, well, he threw baby don't potty out the window, you know, and, and he says, well, she stepped on my WWF Nintendo and, and he did and she did and she did and he did and it starts going and you, you just jump in there and you stop it and you go time out and then you pull them together and you get down on your knees and you look them in the eye and you start talking to them about stuff that is grander than games. That's bigger than a, a doll. That's bigger than a Nintendo. You start talking to them about family. And you start talking to them about sticking together and sticking up for each other. And you start talking to them about what's really important in life. And that people are, are more important than this stuff. And you talk to them about love. And that's what Paul's doing. You see, for 12 chapters, he's been trying to reason with them and deal with the issues. But in chapter 13, he gets down on his knees and he looks them in the eye and he says, here's what's really important. Here's the big picture. You've got you to love each other. And when he talks about love, he doesn't use the Greek word eros because he's not talking about sexual love. And he doesn't use the word phileo because he's talking about more than friendship. And he doesn't even use the word storge, which is, which is a familial love. He uses the word for love that's grander than all of that. He uses a word for love that encompasses all of that and, and takes it to the next level. He uses the word agape, which is the kind of love that God has for us. It's, it's a love that, that cares for others. It's a love that goes beyond sentiment and good wishes. It's the kind of love that God first loved us with and therefore it's the kind of love that we should have for others it's the kind of love that offers forgiveness when mistakes are made it's the kind of love that is patient when stress is high it's the kind of love that that offers kindness when kindness is rare why because that's the kind of love that God loved us with first Agape love. 
always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. It always protects. Or in other words, it always looks out for other people. It doesn't protect for a little while, and then when it gets hard, it gives up. Agape love always protects. And that doesn't mean that this is a one-size-fits-all kind of thing, because love looks differently in different situations, but but what the common thread always is, is that love always looks out for somebody else. It always protects. And agape love always trusts. This doesn't mean that love is, is gullible. This is not, you know, Charlie Brown trusting Lucy to hold the ball again. D.A. Carson says love always trusts does not mean it is gullible, but that it prefers to be generous in its openness and acceptance rather than suspicious or cynical. You see, what this means is that, that love always gives the benefit of a doubt. It, it, it's trusting that, that this is true and right. Love always trusts. And agape love always hopes. Love always hopes for the best, even through terrible disappointments. Anybody here ever been dis- disappointed by somebody else? Um, any of you ever disappointed someone else? <laughs> I have hugely disappointed some people in the last few weeks. But agape love always hopes for the best, even through those disappointments. You know, relationships, relationships struggle. Um, The greatest disappointments in relationships come not because of tragedies, but because of of disappointments with others. Uh, I'm being redundant, maybe. What I'm trying to say is, you know, if you get cancer, I'm sad for you. But if you, uh, I'm really sad for you. That's a bad thing. But my disappointment comes when someone doesn't honor their commitment. If you're in a, a car accident, that's a really bad thing. And, I, and, that's, and that's heartbreaking. But my disappointment comes when uh, marriage vows are disregarded or, or, you know, a relationship goes south because someone is, you know, untrustworthy. The saddest stories about relationships are... are Come because trust has been broken. But true love always hopes. True love hopes for the best, even through terrible disappointments. It hopes for the best for that other person and and hopes for a turnaround in the relationship. 
Now, just because you hope the relationship turns around, does that mean it will turn around? No. But it doesn't mean we don't hope for that. It doesn't mean that we still don't want to see restoration there. We've learned that love keeps no record of wrongs, but true love goes beyond that. True love always hopes for the best. It's not just that I'm not keeping a record of the wrong, I'm hoping for the best. And finally, love always perseveres. Love hangs on, it endures, it doesn't close up shop, hang up or give up. Love always perseveres, it endures all things. If you want one, one word that can encapsulate this sentence, it would be that love is tenacious. It just, it's just always. See, true love is not for pansies. True love is tough. But true love is powerful because it's tenacious and it hangs in there and it's just always in all things. We don't stop loving. We don't give up. We don't throw in the towel. Love always, always, always perseveres. And aren't you glad that that's how Christ's love for you is? Aren't you glad that what we celebrate when we come to the table every week, we celebrate the fact that no matter what I did and no matter what I will do, Christ's love always, always, always perseveres. Because his his death on the cross covers all of that stuff. This is the type of love that Paul prescribes for the church in Corinth. And this is the type of love that he prescribes for us. And we need it, don't we? Because don't we sometimes still fight with each other? Aren't we sometimes a little too loose morally? Don't we sometimes use our freedom in such a way that it hurts other people? Answers, yes, yes, and yes. And the only thing that will help us deal with those things is the true love, the always love, the the all things love that God has for us. As I said at the beginning of this series, 1 Corinthians 13 is not a list of what we do to become true lovers. 1 Corinthians 13 is a, is a declaration of what we become when we live in the love that God has for us. You don't get up in the morning and say, okay, today I'm going to work on patience. Now, you get up in the morning and you avail yourself of the love that God has for you and then He works patience into you. 
You say, Keith, well, I can't love like this. I looked at this list, and as we've been going through this series, I can't do this one, and I can't do that one. And, and this is just, it's impossible. You know what? You're right. You can't love like this, and I can't love like this in my own strength. But if you are a follower of Jesus then you have died to self and you have taken on his life and he has infilled you with his Holy Spirit and because you are his, then his life can be lived through you. And if you will put your trust in him, he will work these things into your life. He will work protecting into us. He will work trusting into us. He will work hoping into us. He will work persevering into us. He will make us tenacious lovers of others. Imperfectly, with fits and starts and ups and downs, absolutely. But the more we avail ourselves of his love, the more these things will become true of us. As I've said throughout this series, if you want to be a person who truly loves, the secret to true love is living loved. The secret to true love is experiencing the love that God has for you, the, the, the always kind of love, the all things kind of love that Jesus has for you. And if you will live in that love, then you will more and more be able to live out that love. And you will come to find that that kind of love never fails. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we sing so often, your love never fails, never gives up, never gives up on me. I pray that we would live in the reality of that and that we would know without question the depth of your love. I pray, Lord, that we would, we would hear Paul's words where he gets down on his knees and he looks us in the eye and he says, it's, really, it's about love. And that we would, we would recognize your love for us and then we would, we would live in that love and then we would live out of that love. Lord, I pray for the person that's here this morning that, that doesn't really know that love pray that they would. I pray that your Holy Spirit would would show them who you are and that they would open their hearts to you and begin to experience the amazing, unknowable, and yet knowable love that you have. Now, Lord, as we come to the table, I pray that you will uh, 
inspire us, that you will transform us because of what you did for us on the cross. Pray this for your name's sake. Amen.